You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. This is such uh, an unusual passage. We need to reverence it uh, by standing before the Lord. Take your copy of God's Word, John chapter 17. We come to the last uh, six verses of this prayer where Jesus prays for us, beginning in verse 20. Listen to what he says. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Father, in these moments, as we enter into this holy of holies of the heart of our Savior and hear his prayer, God, speak to us, move us, transform us, for I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In my office hangs a prayer. I think I've told you this before. doesn't mean anything to anybody else, but it means a great deal to me. It was a, a prayer that my dad prayed over me the first Sunday that I went to First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. There was a man there on staff by the name of Don, and Don very kindly took uh, the tape of that Sunday, and he uh, had that prayer manuscripted and uh, framed, and he gave it to me. And uh, nobody ever notices that picture. They look at other things in my office, but they never notice that prayer, but it doesn't matter to me because it probably is the greatest little thing that I have in my office. I can hear my dad's voice. I can hear the tone, the timbre. I can hear his intonation. I can hear every time he would pause, I can simply hear my dad as he stood before several thousand that Sunday morning and he prayed for me. It's something when somebody prays for you and calls your name before God. Now, that prayer in my office is the prayer my dad prayed for his son, his only son, (laughs) me. Um, But here you hear the son as the son in John chapter 17 prays to the father. And as you hear this, you're going to hear this morning the heart literally of the Savior as he prays for those who whom he will save down through human history. You're going to hear him pray for you. 
Now, last Sunday, I made a statement, and I want to go back to that, and I want you to be reminded as we read, beginning in verse 20, as we hear this prayer, that the primary purpose of Jesus Christ coming into this world was not to save you and me. It was to glorify the Father, and the way the Father was glorified was by saving you and me. So Jesus said, Father, I've come to glorify you. And get over to Hebrews chapter 10. And he said, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I have come. Lo, I have come to do thy will. Jesus' chief objective was to glorify the Father. And the Father was glorified by his being put to death so that his blood would pay for your sin and for my sin. Now, having said that, I said that because having said that, I say it because of this. Too many times we come to church and we are convinced this whole thing is about me. It is not. All of this is about Jesus Christ. All of this is about Jesus Christ. The one who died for us, yes but the one who sought the glory of the Father as he died for us. So now I want you to hear the prayer because this is about you. Right here, Jesus prays for you and he's going to pray three things and I want you to get a hold of what he's praying in these last six, seven verses right here. Uh, Chapter 17 of John, beginning in verse 20, I want you to understand that he comes And Jesus begins to pray here for our unification. Now, let me show you three things in this prayer. And by the way, there are about 16, I'm going to mention a couple of these, purpose clauses in this prayer. If I were going to do this over, I think I'd go through all 16 purpose clauses and just point out this is a purpose clause, purpose clause, purpose clause. It's about 16 in this chapter, which is very unusual. Uh, I'm going to show you what uh, Jesus is doing in that. But I want you to see three things that he does not pray for. And then I want you to concentrate on what he is praying for. Verse 9, look at what he says. Here, I do not ask on behalf of the world. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. He's praying for the disciples right there in that section. So he says, listen, I'm not praying on behalf of the world. I'm praying for those who have trusted me and followed me. Verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. That's the second thing that he does not pray for. Now, what he's doing is he's clarifying what he's praying for. Lord, I don't want you to take them out of the world. We're going to baptize in the next service. And the reason we don't just drown them and send them on to glory (laughs) is because God has a purpose for us being here. He says, I don't want you to take them out of the world. So that's why we don't drown them when we baptize them. Because Jesus prayed, don't don't take them out of the world. Uh, Keep them from the evil one. Now, there's a reason why. Look at the third thing in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He's referring just to the 11 disciples. Now, remember, at this point, Judas has gone out. He's gone out to betray Christ, 11 are left. Peter is going to deny him three times that night, and all the rest of them are going to run away. So Jesus prays now with these 11 that are there, and he prays with them, and uh, he says, I'm not just praying for them. Now this is where you come into play. He's praying for you. 
Watch this, verse 20. But for those also who believe in me through their word. That is, these 11 disciples are to go out and they are to give testimony. They're to bear witness. They're to share. They're not just going to teach and preach. They're going to also disciple. They're going to also share a witness. They're also going to tell others. All of those that were discipled and heard the gospel under the apostles became what is called the church fathers. That is, they were, led to Jesus, they were led to Jesus Christ by an apostle. When the apostles died, the church fathers then picked up the mantle. They preached, they taught, they discipled, they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. The next generation became the patristics. I'm giving you some church history. They became the patristics. When the fathers died, the patristics picked that up. They preached, they taught, they discipled, they shared a witness and a testimony, and people came to Jesus Christ. And as you follow that, you follow that down, it's interesting that Jesus' prayer for us begins with the whole concept of evangelism. It's going to end that way as well. But it begins with evangelism. Why are you here? You are here to tell people about Jesus Christ. You're not here to collect a salary. That's surely in life, you, you know that life is much more than that. You're not here just to pay taxes. Amen is right. Amen. Thank the Lord for that. You're not here just to have children and just die and that just kind of goes on and on and on. You're here for a witness. He says, I pray for them. I don't want you to take them out of the world. And I'm not praying just on behalf of these 11. But now we've got now the years to come, the generations to come, the centuries, the millennia to come for those who will believe in me through their word. That's one of our values, evangelism at uh, Valleydale Church. And we ask, uh, one of the diagnostic questions is this, is are you sharing your faith regularly? Jesus prayed for that. But now let me show you what he is praying for beyond that. He's praying for our unity. He's not praying for us to be uniform. He is praying for our unity. He is praying for our unification. He is praying that we would be united in love. In fact, just listen to what he says in verse 21, that they may all be one, even as... Uh, you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. He's still on this thing of just this oneness, this unity, this unification, not uniformity. He's not praying that we all look alike, sound alike, act alike. He's not praying that we become part of the collective. We are not going to a cyborg. We are going to a personal God. We are not going to be absorbed into the oneness of the one. As Buddha said, we are going to a God that has a personality. We know him as God the Father. We know him as God the Son. We know him as God the Holy Spirit. One yet three personalities. And so he says, listen, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. 
Now, this whole thing is carried out uh, as you come to this, this whole unity idea is carried out in love. It's carried out in this whole concept that God loves us. And there is a unity and that in that unity, you and I love one another. That there's a unity of the love of a holy God and a holy love that is exemplified in the Trinity. The love that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have is a holy love. We are to exemplify that. We are to show that. Now, this whole prayer is prayed there in the upper room. And if you want to see the setting of it, you have to go back to John chapter 13. This is where they enter the upper room. Jesus is praying this prayer in the upper room. They leave there, and then he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's going to pray that, that prayer we are all aware of in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that is, not my will, but thy will be done. Not my will, Father, but thy will be done. But here they enter into the upper room. And by the way, if you're reading the other gospels, they enter the upper room with some disagreement, some upset, some argument among the disciples as to who is going to be the greatest. So while they're discussing around the table about their positions in the kingdom, about who's going to be doing what, Jesus gets up, he girds himself with a towel, he takes a basin of water, and he begins to wash their feet. And in John 13, I hope you're there, verse 12, Jesus asks them the question, do you know what I've done to you? In the midst of all of your talking about uh, how great you're going to be, do you do you realize what I've just done? Now, by the way, at this point, Judas has not left. So Jesus comes in, he watches the feet of Judas as well. And uh, he looks at these disciples and he says, you call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. I'm giving you this example that I'm the leader of this group here and yet I'm the guy who went and got a basin of water and a towel and I got down on my hands and knees and I washed your stinking feet. Now he didn't, he didn't, he didn't say that. That's, that's a free interpretation that I threw in. But that's, that's what happened. I washed your dirty feet. And he does tell Peter that. So he comes and listen to what he says. As he's talking to them, he comes in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another, because by this all men will know that you are my disciples. This is the distinguishing mark. Not that you have a cross on the outside of your church, not that you put up a name, this is a church, but that you love each other is how people will know you are my disciples. Nobody else says that. Muhammad does not say that. Buddha does not say that. Krishna does not say that. Shirley MacLaine does not say that. Oprah doesn't say that. Jesus says that. That's why this prayer would be ridiculous on anybody else's lips. This is the prayer that only Jesus could pray. 
Now, what does he want of us in this unity? I want you to listen to this. I'm going to quote John MacArthur here. Jesus wants us to confront an unholy world, an ungodly world, a disconnected, shattered, broken, ruined world with a vision of a holy, loving oneness. The world can't find that anywhere. Now, that's me. That's not MacArthur. The world can't find that anywhere. You can't set theology aside if you're going to get that because holiness is predicated upon sound doctrine. Amen, John MacArthur. It is a oneness. It is a separate oneness. It is a oneness apart from the world. He wants people to look at us and say, Jesus Christ must be a saving God. Jesus Christ must be a savior. Jesus Christ must have come to deliver us from sin because look at the holiness of those people. That is is the issue. So the sad part is that when unbelievers look at the church, they don't necessarily see unity. They certainly don't see a holy unity. That's the point. Amen. Francis Schaeffer says this, love is the sign of a Christian. And when the world does not see this, they have the categorical right not to receive the message. Jesus prays, Father, I want them left in the world because I want them to share generation to generation to generation. I want them to be a witness. I want them to be a testimony. And the way that the people will believe this is the gospel is that they will see how these people love each other. Gene Getz, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, great Bible preacher, great Bible teacher, uh, taught at Dallas Theological Seminary, was there when I was pastoring in Dallas, pastored, I think it was Northwest uh, Bible Church, I'm not sure, but he pastored a church while I was there as well as being a professor at DTS. He talks about this very thing, and he hits the nail on the head uh, when he begins to point out if you look at the miracles of God, they come in three different clumps. There were the miracles that surrounded the ministry of Moses and Joshua. All the miracles that took place then. It was God who was validating that what these men were saying was true. That Moses came with a word from God. That's why he could stand up and he could... Uh, uh, pronounce the 10 plagues on Egypt and say, this is what's going to happen. This is what God has said. I'm telling you what God said. And it happened. All of these plagues, uh, the opening of the Red Sea, water from a rock, manna that came down uh, for them to eat, the quail that flew in for them to eat, all of these miracles that worked between Moses and Joshua. Then you had a second period of miracles between the prophets Elijah and Elisha. All of the miracles that Elijah wrought, and then Elisha does twice the number of miracles of Elijah. He had prayed for a double portion of the Spirit of God. And then you come to the third period, and that is Christ and the apostles and Paul in the establishing of the New Testament and the New Testament church. All of the miracles that we see of Christ, all of the miracles that we see of Peter and Paul throughout the book of Acts, uh, you see that. But then Gene Getz, Dr. Getz said, uh, there is the death, the dying out of all the apostles. And with that, pretty much these clumps of miracles. Now, I don't say that there's never been a miracle since then. There certainly have. 
Uh, but uh, these clumps of miracles that you see in the Mo Moses-Joshua period, Elijah-Elisha, Jesus and the apostles and Paul, you don't see miracles like that. But Gene Getz comes and he says this. I want you just to listen to what he says. Great statement that he makes in, in all of this. He says, now that the apostles are gone, in the church age, do you see a miracle that validates the message of the church? Dr. Getz says, yes, it's the miracle of our loving each other. That's the miracle right there. And you say, how is it possible? Just stop and think about this. How is it possible for us to love each other like this? It is because the Father is in Christ and Christ is in the Father and Christ and the Father are in us. That's how that is possible. That's how that takes place. That is the miracle that Getz is talking about. That is what people will stop and say that we don't see anywhere else in the world. You don't see it anywhere else except among the people of God. Now, let me, let me just show you this. Watch this. Uh, have you got your Bibles there? I'm going to be grammatical for just a moment. I'm going to show you three purpose clauses in this one verse. In verse 21, that they may all be one. Now, if you're using the NASB uh, 95 uh, translation, that's what I'm preaching out of. You, you have the first word there, that. In the Greek, that is henna, iota, nu, alpha, henna. Every time you see that in Greek, you're coming up on a purpose clause. We call it a henna clause. It's a purpose clause that they may all be one. That's content. This is what I want, Father. I want them to all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and here comes the second one, that, there's the second that. Uh, the second henna claw, that they also may be in us. That's, again, that's the purpose there. That's the content. This is what I want. Now, here comes uh, the purpose in those two content clauses. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus ties people's believing the gospel to how you and I love each other, not how effective you are in sharing the gospel. You see, don't make it about you. I'm no good at sharing the gospel. Jesus didn't say, if you are good at it, share the gospel. He didn't. He said, share the gospel, love your brothers and sisters in Christ, the world will believe it. I'd like to say, here endeth the lesson, but I ain't. So that's what Jesus is saying here. Now, the question is this. What are all the things that divide us? Why is this not carried out? Why is there not a love of the holiness of God and a holy love that we express? Because we've got so many things that divide us. My stars, the Southern Baptist Convention today is divided in so many different ways that every single morning I get up and I look at some of it, I just shut it down and I move on to do what God's called me to do. 
And I wonder how can so many people, why, why is there such a division racially? Why is there a division among brothers and sisters in the church over things like politics, over things like racism, over things like gender, over things like all the stuff that, can, that the world dabbles and messes around in, we drag it into the church and we use that to divide us from each other. When what we need to do is this. We need to get back to the word of God. And we need to love one another. Now, I'm going to end this point right here with a statement. This very, this very part of the prayer of Jesus has been used by many to say, then we need to lay doctrine aside and just love one another. I'm going to tell you something. You cannot love one another unless... You are in God through Christ, and that is doctrine. That is a heretical statement that people think sounds good, but it is straight out of hell that we set doctrine aside. No, 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 no. We set ourselves under the word of God. And when we put ourselves under the word of God, then we love each other in the way we should. Now, let me give you the second thing. Are you ready? The second thing is this, not just this whole part there of unification. He wants us to be one, but now he comes and he wants us to have a realization of our glorification. Now, this is real to the father and this is real to the son. Now, watch it as I begin in verse 22 the glory which you have given me. Now, I'm going to stop and walk you kind of through this. This is the eternal word God the Father has given glory to the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. A.T. Robertson, the great Greek uh, grammarian of Baptist uh, in the 1800s, says that this is the messianic, the... Um, the incarnation, the incarnational, the word that has become incarnate gives us his glory. It's not the eternal word giving us his glory. It is the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, who gives us his glory. Now watch this. Think about this. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Now do you think of anything when you read that? Do you think? When you read scripture, when you read this and you stop and you think that Jesus Christ has given me his glory, that's what he's praying right here. That's what he's saying. Does that not bring anything up to your mind? What about Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and come short of the... I've come short of it. You've come short of it. I make this point because I want you to grasp this. You have no glory of your own. Uh, did God the Father ever say to you when you were baptized, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased? No, he only said that of one person. Who? His son, Jesus Christ. Uh, 
who was it that God the Father raised, resurrected from the dead? Now, there were resuscitations. There's been only one resurrection. Who is that? We'll, we'll celebrate it next Sunday morning. There's been only one resurrection. That's Jesus Christ. God raised him from the dead. Who is it in all of history whose glory split through his humanity and he shone like the noonday sun? On the Mount of Transfiguration, only Jesus Christ. I say all of that to say this, you and I have no glory of our own. But Jesus right here tells us this, that you and I have been given his glory. When you trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the incarnate word, gave you his glory. Now, to drive the point home, I want to ask you a question have you ever stopped to think that the person sitting next to you, if they know Jesus Christ, is the glory of Christ? I never thought about that. You watch somebody walking across our unstriped parking lot. Do you ever stop and think, there goes the glory of Christ? Do you ever watch and look when somebody walks through this auditorium here? Do you ever stop to think, there goes the glory of Christ? I'm not making this up. If you've got a Bible, look at it. Jesus says right here, this, that you have received his glory. We don't grasp it because we look through such human eyes and we don't ever stop to think that to be saved by Jesus Christ radically changes you. You now are the glory of Christ. Now, let me show you the second thing. Listen, this is just packed full of stuff. Watch it what he comes now. He's going to come to a couple of more purpose clauses here. In them and you and me. I in them, verse 23, and you and me. Here's another purpose clause. That they may be perfected in unity so that it's not just that, you know, they do get along. It's going to be perfected. Perfected in unity so that, here's the next purpose clause, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Oh, my stars now. If the first thing got a hold of you, this one here ought to just drive you to your knees. Not only has Jesus given us his glory, but now he comes and he says, you have loved them Father, the same way you love me. Wow is right. If you folks had any Pentecostal in you at all, y'all would be falling out here. I'm telling you, that is an incredible thought right there, that God the Father loves you just exactly the way he loves Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say two things because there are two things about that, one about you personally and one about every other person. Number one, I want to come to you and I want you to listen to, I want you to listen to me for just a minute. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to talk to you because there are a lot of you that struggle right now in the midst of anxiety. There are a lot of you that are here, you're just struggling, you're anxious, 
You're anxious about so many things. You're anxious about jobs. You're anxious about what's going to happen in the world. You're anxious about all kinds of things, but you're really anxious about yourself. You're full of anxiety about your own life. You're full of anxiety about who you are and am I accepted and does anybody care about me and what's going to become of me and what's going to happen to me and we struggle all of us struggle with this whole thing of depression and discouragement and anxiety in our own personal lives and a lot of you are right there I had an unusual call uh, Thursday night I got a call from a former classmate of mine we went all the way through seminary together a great guy um, he opened up for some reason we became friends. He kind of opened up with me, uh, to me and, uh, he shared with me a lot about his life. Uh, I, I later got out, we preached in twin cities. Um, and, uh, I'm not even going to give anybody any clues to who this is. Uh, although I don't think he would mind, but, uh, I went over to preach a revival for him, got to know him even better there, uh, met his fiance, uh, this Young man, he, he and I went through school together. He struggled all of his life with same-sex attraction. Just struggled with it, fought with it. He not only struggled with same-sex attraction, he struggled with deep, I mean dark depression to where he would come and would say to me, Mac, I prayed last night, God, just let me die in my sleep. Just let me die. He says, I've prayed that night after night after night, and I wake up every morning, and I'm more depressed that God did not do what I asked him to do. Just let me die in my sleep. He came from a horrible home life. His father was just a, just a awful alcoholic. His mother suffered from clinical depression. A lot of this he got biologically. He suffered from depression. He inherited uh, something from her. He got on medication that has evened him out now through the years. Uh, he's just one of those that lacked a certain chemical, lithium, and he, he takes lithium, and now it's just kind of leveled him out. But he still struggles like all of us. His father would come home just blind drunk and begin to beat his mother and he would pull his father off of his mother and his, his father would turn and beat him. He would take the beating so that his younger brother and his mother didn't have to suffer a beating when his father would come home drunk almost every night. Met a young girl, fell in love. God delivered him out of this whole issue. Yes, you can be delivered out of same-sex attraction. And if not, God can give you the strength like he has this young man to live through it. He married this young girl. He loved her. They had a little girl. Then they had twin girls. And about four years ago, she walked out and left him for someone else. And for four years, he's lived through just this wanting to die again. In fact, he told me, he said, Mac, he said, after the divorce, he said, I was convinced I'd die within a year to 18 months. Somewhere in that period, I would just simply die. And here I am four years later, and I've not died yet. But he called to tell me <laughs> that he said, I've come across a passage in a sermon by Spurgeon. Now, are y'all awake? Are y'all listening to me? All right, put your finger in John chapter 17. Go with me back to Psalm 77. And I want you to see this. Spurgeon preaches a sermon. I've read it twice now this weekend because I've never read this sermon by Spurgeon before. 
preached on January 31st, 1869. Now listen to the first two verses. My voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out uh, without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. Now, that was the basis of Spurgeon's sermon, my soul refused to be comforted. And what Spurgeon said of that was this, that is not a command to be followed. It is a warning to be avoided. Spurgeon said, we are not to be in that place where the psalmist was, and that literally is in a place where you cannot be consoled. My soul refused to be comforted. And this friend said on the phone to me, he said, I have been living in sin because I have refused to be comforted. And he is right. And if you doubt that, read the sermon by Spurgeon. I've just given you the date. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He says, it is not intended for us to imitate. This speaks of the sin of not being comforted. The sufferer has a right to mourn. But that right is abused into a wrong when protracted sorrows poison the spring of the heart. The Christian is to get over his or her anxiety and grief. And you say, but pastor, how do I get over that kind of grief? I come to the prayer of Jesus Christ himself and I read that God the Father loves me in the way he loves Jesus Christ. And that should deliver you up and out of the pit of depression and anxiety in your life. Saturate your mind on the word of God, not on what a doctor has said. Saturate your mind on what Jesus is praying here and not on all the things that your brain can dream up. Be comforted. Is that not what the prophet was to preach to the people? People, comfort ye, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. I am trying my best as your pastor this morning to tell you that if you've been down in that place of anxiety, rise up in the strength of Jesus Christ. Realize that the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you the second thing, and the second thing is this. You need to apply that to everybody else. You don't need to sit there and just think, well, God loves me so much. Uh, you need to understand God loves everybody else that way too. He not only loves you like he loves Jesus Christ, he loves everybody else in here like that. He loves every other person just like that. In fact, I'm going to quote to you another. I'm going to go back to Psalm 16. I want you just to listen to what David prays in Psalm 16. It's a great word, and uh, it, it, is, it should be an example for us. He's in a time, it's a mictum. There are six, seven. I think there are seven mictums. This is one. The rest are 50 through 56, 57. I, I, I think that's right. Listen to what he says right here. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. This is when he had been hunted by Saul. And I said to the Lord, you're my Lord. I have no good 
good beside you. Now, I want you to listen to what he says. He says that to God. God, I don't have anything that's good in my life beside you. But now listen, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Do you hear what he says right there? He comes and he says, you know what? To everybody that's sitting here in the place of worship who've trusted Christ, you're the saints of God and you are the majestic one in whom is my delight, David said. This is going to be the king. He's not king yet. He's going to be the king. And he says, my delight is in the people of God. Where's your delight? Is it in an NFL football team? Is it, is it somebody that's in the PGA? Where's your delight? In, in all honesty, where is your delight? If you're sitting next to a person to whom Jesus Christ gave his glory and uh, whom the Father loves just like he loves the Son, shouldn't our delight be in one another? Huh? Well, some of y'all ought to smile at least at some point in a church service if your delight is in the people of God. We should delight in one another. Enjoy one another. Look forward to getting together with one another. I told you the early church did this once every day. We show up maybe once every couple of weeks. I was gone for two weeks and then missed a Sunday. And listen, let me tell you something. I'm still giddy about seeing you. You are my delight. David said the people are his delight. Let me give you the last thing, and my time is gone. I didn't realize I've preached this long. The last thing is this. It's our completion. He prays for our completion. Let me just read it to you. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Now listen to what Jesus is praying. He's already said this. Chapter 14, he's in the upper room. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's what he's praying right here. He's just said that in John chapter 14 in the upper room. Now he's telling this to the Father. I desire that they be with me. Do you hear what Jesus is praying? Jesus is praying. Now just stop and think about this. He is praying that you will spend eternity with him. You think you're excited about spending eternity with Jesus. Jesus is excited about spending eternity with you. Whew, I've preached all I can preach. Y'all just sit there. <laughs> it's amazing what Jesus is praying for us. Oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I've known you, and these have known that you sent me. I know that God sent the Son. I know it because of the word right here. And I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you've loved me may be in them. And I am the, He said, the same love that you have for me, I want to be in them, and I want them to be in us, and I want to spend eternity. That's our complete. Listen, our completion is not here on this earth. Our completion is when we're in eternity with him. Now, you know, the amazing thing in all of that is that Jesus has prayed consistently through this. Let their love for each other shine so that the world may know. I don't know if you like the Beatles or not. I've got two boys that are crazy about them. I grew up with them and don't like them personally. But um, they went through interesting phases. 
The first phase was the rock and roll phase. You know, they come, they're on Ed Sullivan, um, you know, and they sing these, these romantic songs. Hey, I want to hold your hand. 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 You know, that just, and they, they had that rock and roll stage that they, that's how they started out. But they evolved very quickly over into their drug stage when everything started to be about drugs. You know, Lucy in the Sky. What are all those things? Uh, what was that, the Rubber album? Uh, that whole album, I think it was Lennon that said that was our drug album. And they talk about smoking pot and they talk about, and they move into that and they get a little deeper into it, a little deeper into it. And George Harrison goes out to Haight-Asbury out in San Francisco and he walks down Haight-Asbury and he sees all of these young kids. He sees needles everywhere, joints everywhere, cocaine everywhere. And there they are and they're dying in their own vomit. And George Harrison comes back and says, no, nah, I don't think maybe this is not right. Maybe this isn't it. So then they go through their Eastern mysticism stage and they're inviting everybody, come on with us, come on with us. You know, we missed it with the rock and roll. Come on, expand your mind um, um, with, with drugs. And no, that's not the answer. Come on and let's go to India. And so they go to India and they go to the Maharashi Yogi and uh, there they think we, we have found the answer in the Maharashi. The Maharishi Yogi begins to steal out of their bedrooms stuff guitars and things that he wants. They discover he wants to use their fame in order to build his notoriety. And then he starts hitting on all their girlfriends to come over to his place. And so one by one, the Beatles decide we're out of here. They come back. I think it's George Harrison again is in an interview and he said, well, we made a mistake. We made a mistake. The guy that wrote the song and sang the song, you know, my sweet Lord, talking about Krishna, and I think we made a mistake. And the interviewer says, what's the mistake? And he says, the Maharishi Yogi we discovered was human. Oh, good Lord have mercy. Um, what, what a brilliant deduction uh, to come to. And yet, everybody likes their music, but nobody at any point really gives them any credibility. Why? Because they could stand and sing all you need is love. And all they didn't have for one another was love. And they broke apart and they broke up and they cracked up, and, uh, you know, and everything else because nobody believed the message the Beatles sang, all you need is love. Will the world believe our message? that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's stand. Let me invite you to make a decision this morning. Jesus loves you. God loves you. If there's any doubt in your mind, my start, just read the prayer of Jesus for you hours before he is going to be arrested and tortured and crucified. This whole week should scream to you, there is more to your life than just stuff. God sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. 
have you ever done that in your life? Have you ever personally trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Not believed facts about him or believed stories about him, but have you ever gone to Christ and said, Jesus, be Lord of my life. I come to put my trust and my faith in you. It's not walking an aisle. It's not joining a church. It's not being a Baptist. It's none of those. It's about coming to Jesus Christ and simply confessing your sin. I'm a sinner. I'm unable to save myself. But I come this morning and I ask you to forgive me of my sins and I put my faith in you. I put my trust in you. If you've never done that, do that right now. Come here and let me pray with you. I'll pray with you. Come and let me share with you. I'll share with you. If you've never done it, you slip out from wherever you are right now. If you want somebody to come with you, nudge the person next to you and say, walk with me. They'll do it, I promise you. You may not know them, but they'll walk with you. Come in this moment to Jesus Christ. Some of you need to join this church. Come in this moment and do that. Nail down that decision this, this Palm Sunday morning and say, we're, we're going to be a part of the local body of, of the body of Jesus Christ here at Valleydale. Right now, I'm here. I'm waiting on you. You come. Maybe God's speaking to your heart about ministry. Come and surrender to it. Come and say, I don't know what God's calling me to do, but I want to be responsive to God's call on my life, whatever it is. Come right now. Slip out. Make this moment the moment that you make that decision. Just with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, respond to God's call on your life. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.